Hello, I am C-3PO, and I believe the storyteller is ready. So, let us begin. Please don't start. Oh, what? You'll have me wiped? You couldn't get from here to Blackspire without me. Now you're going to make the Kessel run? If she doesn't want to fly, I'll be your co-pilot. No, I don't know. No, no, no. It's okay. So our 20 picks back up uh, with Lando guiding the rest of our heroes through an alley toward the ship that he's promised to shuttle them on, uh, which of course we know ahead of time is the Millennium Vulcan. They have very low expectations for what to expect from this ship. Uh, Sure enough, it's everyone's initial instinct when they see it. Kind of junky. Step inside and it's really not the Millennium Falcon that we know at all. Yeah, uh, Han's pretty impressed by the outer look. I mean, he thinks it's going to be junky, but uh, he realizes that there's a few added pimped out parts that uh, clearly Lando's made some modifications to what this originally was, because Han recognizes the ship. Uh, and as they board it, he even mentions that to Lando, that his dad used to make these ships uh, while aboard. Uh, he gets in a little kind of a, a flirting situation with Kira in the cape closet. Uh, this is after uh, L3 had to kind of break down some locks to get them in uh, and aboard. And uh, Beckett had to then, of course, uh, to break some restraining bolts as well. Uh, but they're flying on their way to Kessel. Uh, they program in the coordinates as L3 and Lando fly them there. Uh, and then Beckett kind of corrals Han away from Kira. When they uh, close in on uh, Kessel, they kind of have to come up with a sort of plan, a, a fake reason for being there. Uh, Kira goes out front as the face of the operation. She feeds them a fairly flimsy lie about why they're there and who they are. And that kind of gains them access into the mines at which point they sort of all split up with different responsibilities. Yes, so Han and Chewie go off to find the coaxium, uh, being kind of coordinated from the main area by L3. Uh, Kira is the one who's distracting the main um, the main pike director uh, and uh, actually takes him out in the back room with L3. Uh, and L3 creates kind of a droid uprising uh, to create enough of a distraction that allows Han, uh, sorry, yeah, Han and Chewie to be able to sneak down amongst all the chaos uh, and steal the coaxium. In the process, Chewie notices another Wookiee and breaks off. So this kind of leaves Han on his own to handle 12 extremely heavy canisters of coaxium, which is uh, a big undertaking, but he handles it. And at this point, I guess all hell is kind of broken loose where it comes to uh, Beckett and the rest of the gang. There's a little battle taking place within uh, the control room and people are kind of on to uh, our heroes at this point. And so they need to get out of there as quickly as possible. They emerge back into the landing pad where the Falcon is, and really they have to get that coaxium onto the freighter uh, without blowing up the entire planet. Um, but they re- their, their cover is blown, and essentially it's understood now that they're stealing. Yes, there's a full-fledged shootout, uh, and this was after uh, Chewie had to go and free some Wookiees, uh, and then more slaves were freed uh, through the kind of droid uprising. And so, yes, shit has broken uh, loose for the Empire, uh, uh, or at least the pikes running the mine. Uh, in the midst of the shootout, uh, L3 is bragging about uh, how proud she is of her uprising, and she gets shot and blown to smithereens. 
Uh, Lando runs out into the field, uh, gathers L3 back up. Han goes after Lando because Lando's too busy trying to catch all the pieces. And then Chewie goes after Han, Lando, and L3 because Han's not strong enough to carry all them. Uh, they get themselves back aboard the Millennium Falcon, and then they take off. Interestingly, my initial instinct watching this 20 this morning was that, particularly inside the mines in the control room, that the set pieces kind of looked a little cheap. And I was forgiving of yeah. that, for one, because it's Star Wars, but also just... It, I don't know. It had it had an understandable charm given where they were. I guess you know where they are. It's not like the budget is super strong. And then about halfway through the twenty, I realized that it's additionally forgivable because this whole sequence kind of is reminiscent of when they first infiltrate the Death Star in A New Hope, and they have these costumes on and they're pretending to be uh, just routine procedurals. And it's a little bit clumsy and ultimately uh, results in a shootout. Yep, same thing with Rogue One as well, uh, with K2SO, Cassian, and Jin. Uh, yeah, and they kind of, kind of all thing. break into that same intro. Yeah, it's, it's it's this classic Star Wars trope, and so it's uh, it's. But there's just, in my opinion, uh, one of my big issues with this is this twenty is such a an important twenty for the overall story, and not enough happens. No, it, it feels like this is a, a kind of a pivotal twenty where you're supposed to be building up to a climax, and the next 20 almost it just is not the climax that you're waiting for it's almost like okay there must be something else coming after this and while there still is more it this is when i the movie in my opinion really starts to disappoint because it's you can tell that it's not more than what it already is right the big problem with this 20 might be that there is no uh distinct antagonist like we understand who our heroes are not in this sequence we don't have like mm. one big bad guy that we ultimately have to overtake in order for this to be a successful mission we just know that the nondescript aliens are the bad guys and we need to escape yeah. them and they're not remotely competent like i mean everybody makes fun of the stormtroopers but like they're not even they haven't even clued in to the fact that they're being attacked for a little while and they get very easily overthrown uh, so it doesn't really work in that regard to providing a whole lot of, I guess, potential conflict for our heroes because they really have, like, it goes pretty smoothly for them start to finish. <laughs> Except there's this, like, weird theme in this 20 in particular about oppression. And it exists within, of course, the droids, which we can talk about in a second because we agree that's irritating. But then also this thing about Wookiee slaves, which we already have seen in this movie once, and now we're seeing it's more prevalent throughout the galaxy. How do you feel about the whole Wookiee storyline here and how it kind of uh, derails Chewie's focus for a little while? I like it. I think it kind of... Uh gives us a little bit of what we would want to see with like Chewie and his family uh, kind of in that capacity. And it also throws back a little bit to Revenge of the Sith. Uh, but I just, I, I think as an overall, it's important to kind of the Wookiee culture, but at the same time, it makes complete 100% sense for him to stay with Han in this situation. Uh, the fact that he's already kind of stayed with Han up until this point, there's really no reason why he would then kind of go off with these Wookiees unless he knew that these Wookiees were going back to, I guess, wherever the Wookiee sanctuary was at this point. My guess is Kashyyyk. Um, well, I'm sure there were parts of Kashyyyk that were 
I guess, sanctuary areas for Wookiees, but for the most part, it was enslaved by the Empire, so. He does kind of abandon Han at a pretty pivotal time. Like, he bails, and yeah. Han's pretty compassionate about it. He's understanding, but, like, immediately then Han has to load 12 extremely heavy canisters, which are also uh, very precarious, and certainly uh, <laughs> Chewie's might would have been useful in that instance. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no way Han gets it back up the the mine shaft without Chewie eventually coming back uh, and kind of saving the day by providing some uh, extra support and ultimately the brute strength that they needed to push it up the hill. Just in general, uh, I found uh, the canisters to be a bit of a take back because the big shootout in the end, there's like literally explosions happening. Like Kira threw a little hand grenade at one point. If these things are so uh, precious, how come nothing like cataclysmically exploded. Oh, that whole shootout is a huge take back. They're in the wide fucking open the entire time. And no one gets hit except for when L3 is literally standing in the middle of, (laughs) like, it it was shocking that she didn't get hit earlier. She deserved to get hit the way she was just in the middle bragging. And, like, it's just like, what is, like, it was just so stupid. It made no sense whatsoever that the droid was that dumb for right. a character that we've been convinced of over the, or been, we were supposed to have been convinced of over the last 25 minutes is like savvy and quick and clever, but frankly just was a fucking moron after like, you want to start a rebellion and make real change. Well then how about you don't get yourself killed? Yeah. You were immediately in the camp of, I hate L3 and after the first viewing of Solo, I wanted to give her something of a chance because in terms of like witty dialogue, I guess she has some quips, but you're absolutely yeah. right. The, char- the character is brutally written. Also, her whole crusade about equal rights for droids, and she actually says like one of her quips is equal rights at one point in this, and she dies by screaming the word uh, subjugation or something. And... I actually think that's, maybe it's not for me to say, but it it feels a little offensive. It kind of feels like the whole character is lampooning civil rights activism. Does it not? It kind of seems like, uh, aren't these people so annoying? Isn't it so obnoxious when, when people are acting like this? And it also kind of equates droids to women or racial minorities, which I'm sorry, they're just not. I know in Star Wars, our many of our droid characters have feelings. I get that. I think what they're going for there is it. it in the Star Wars world, it kind of needs to be considered a little bit more. Um, in the same way that, like, the alien races are severely oppressed by the Empire, right? Um, very much Nazi-like, uh, and that's why you see more aliens in the prequels uh, versus the uh, kind of original trilogy, and that was definitely something that's been broadened out. Uh, but I, I get what you mean as to why it's kind of seen as a mock, and ultimately. That might be why I find the characters like kind of just offensive and frustratingly annoying. Yeah, I guess it's it's a joke of the situation, kind of because L three is just so goddamn annoying and fits every negative stereotype of um, I guess liberal activism. And yeah, it's just, it's it kind of trivializes annoying. civil rights. I, I felt. What yeah. about what about her plot uh, where she's convinced that? Lando is in love with her. I'm in the same situation. You are. 
I'm sure you've noticed that Lando has feelings for me, which makes working together difficult because I do not feel the same way about him. Right. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I see that. Sometimes I think. Maybe. But no. We're just not compatible. An unnecessary addition to the story. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just didn't need to be in there at all. Um, I thought that scene made me like Kira more. Uh, it, to be honest, I actually had that as a note. Kira is one of the, kind of my uh, winners for the 20. And although this movie and a lot of parts of it have um, kind of stayed a little kind of, you know, status quo, maybe not aged overly well within the last year. However, I think of all the things, Kira's grown on me the most from Solo of all the kind of the aspects of that movie. Yeah, I'm okay with Kira. I have I have no problem with her personally. I just wish we, and in fact, this was my very first reaction to Kira was, oh, I just wish we could know more about her and we might mm. not ever really get to know as much as I'd, as I'd like to know. I actually think she's cool as a cucumber on a lot of these pieces, but because she's there, our Han, quote unquote, is cringier than I ever hoped to see him. The other thing about Kira is the movie seems to be under the impression that we don't realize that she's shady. Like, yeah. She's obviously shady at this point, and there's all this like really obvious allusion alluding to the fact that she's shady, as if like that's not clear from from jump. Well, I mean, Beckett's insanely obvious foreshadowing and his talks of betrayal, I mean, holy shit, like could you spell it out for us a little bit more that you're going to stab him in the back or that that's going to be a theme in this movie? That was oh, one when thing he's... that bothered me about this movie is that I knew from the dead fucking beginning that either one of the two of them, Beckett and or Kira, would be betraying Han. I probably, I assumed one of them would die as like an ally and one of them would be a betrayer. Um, but like it was pretty obvious and kind of what happened one of the people just kind of went away uh as a different version of themselves and the other person betrayed and died and so i mean like when beckett is playing the board game with chewy he he wins and chewy has like a bit of a hissy fit and he says all you got to do is think a few moves ahead anticipate your opponent there's a lesson to be learned here and he might as well have winked at the camera yeah it was pretty bad <laughs> Well, and just him saying to Han, warning Han of Kira and saying, maybe you don't know her well enough. Like, oh, I did yeah, like I, that I, I get it. She's obviously got some some friends in low places. And, um, and, and she's kind of warning him of the same thing when she's like, look, you'll look at me differently. How do you feel about that scene? I, I Like I mentioned, I find Han uh, spoilingly creepy and, and cringy in that scene. And he's he's not a good flirt. Like if if nothing else, it should be in his nature to be charming. I want to tell you so much and i want to know everything that's happened to you since corellia well i i'm not sure we have that kind of time we could we could have all the time we want after the job you and i no definitely he doesn't come across he he's very um clingy to a degree like in like he's he's He's, he's so excited to see her when she's so obviously not as excited to see him. Right. <laughs> or very, I guess, cautious about seeing him. And it, you're right. It's, it takes away from the cool as a cucumber Han Solo that we know. Um, and it just, like, you don't really want to see him be, like, he's supposed to be that clever. He's supposed to have that clever charm no matter what. And that should make him naturally 
a gifted flirt, no matter what his stance is on the other person. I got some trivia. Yeah, okay. I have no doubt that you're going to be able to bang through mine. There's a, this is one of those really jargony, Star Wars-y, dialogue-y 20s where there's like a lot of like uh, little buzzwords that you just kind of don't even register because they sound like textbook Star Wars things. So if I didn't make notes of them, I'm not going to be able to remember them for the most part, but you can try me. Yeah, a lot of them uh, are really good callbacks, though, to other things in Star Wars, which is nice. Padawan question for you. Uh, where will you find the thermal vault? At the mining colony. Uh, it is on the lowest level, which is the warmest level. That's right, where it's uh, warm. And if you need to uh, take directions, it's a left. Uh, it's down two levels, in the left and then a right <laughs> and then another left. Okay, you you definitely got bonus points for that one. Okay, awesome. <laughs> uh, my uh, Padawan question, um, what percent of the the heist take does Lando now have uh, after Beckett took off the restraints on the Falcon? He's down to 20%. He is down to 20%, correct. You got this one, no problem. Night question, what is the exact model of the Millennium Falcon? The exact model of the Millennium Falcon is a Corellian uh, YT-1300 freighter, uh, some variation of those words in that order. Yeah, you got it right. So so are there other Corellian YT models? Like, are there ships that look a little bit like the Falcon out there? Uh, I would assume that there would be similar sort of ships. I don't know of any other specific models existing out there in Star Wars canon. I would be shocked if there wasn't one that existed in Legends that had similar variations to the Falcon. But then again, the Falcon is also kind of that illustrious uh, ship and... It also wouldn't shock me if Star Wars has kind of stayed away from anything to do with yep. uh, kind of that model line or the potential for there being another ship to kind of mimic that moniker. Yeah, it's so sacred. It almost would feel weird to see another ship look anything like it. Sacred the, is the great way. Of, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is it's almost strange to even consider that the Millennium Falcon has a make and model. Like the way it's talked about and and its legend in general kind of suggests that some crazy wild-eyed scientist just like built it in his garage and it's not it's not um like a registered vehicle at all. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's in, it's endowed with so much prestige and legend that it doesn't seem like it could be a factory built machine. Yeah, well I think it's kind of I think we have to view it as the similar sort of way that you would view like a speedboat versus like a yacht. And the fact that any like like a, an X-Wing is a is a mass manufactured one person uh, fighter jet. And so it's, it's uh, or, yeah, you know what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah, but the, the X-Wing fighters are not treated in Star Wars as like proprietary individual. But yeah, but like that's the thing is the Falcon is one where I mean... Like a yacht, for example, is it mass produced? Yes and no. Like large boats and, and such like that. Yes, they're mass produced, but mass produced in limited quantities. And if you buy one of them, do you call it, oh, that's my, um, I don't know the name of any boat companies like or yacht companies like that. So that's my, you know, <laughs> um, that's my that's my dinghy 400 over there. No, you call it like your, your ladybird or whatever. You give it a name. And so like, but if you have like, you know, a small little Zodiac, you may not name your Zodiac because it's, you know, it's not the same sort of investment uh, from, like you said, that sacred perspective. 
Right, equate it to like the Black Pearl, which presumably was built by some guy who built a lot of ships and probably a that lot of a... ships in similar styles, but it's been so modified and had such a an illustrious, uh, adventurous life as a ship yes. that it's kind of it's its own unique special thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're not going to know about the name the Millennium Falcon unless you've heard a story about the Millennium Falcon, and that's only when it really matters that it has a name anyway. I will say the the Falcon in general is one of my uh, winners for this twenty. It just looks so fly. Absolutely, I love its blueness. It, I love how how sleek it looks. I think that the way they they made it Lando's is one of the best things about the movie. Oh, it's so spot on, and I love. Uh, and I know it's not in this twenty, but the ejection of the escape pod. Uh, and the reason why that's missing, but just so many things about the Falcon are just so spot on to what that ship makes sense to have looked like in its finest shape. While we're on the subject, I'll give you my master question. What three updates did Lando make to the Falcon? Oh, geez. Well, I did. He got the escape pod. Correct. Did he like no. list them off in the movie or did you go hunting for them? Yeah, he listed three things. You'll you'll know one of them for sure because it's like a funny thing he says. Did he put in like a like a wet bar? Yep, that's two of three. And the other one okay. is just some random random word. Uh, is it like did he improve the quarters or something like the sleeping quarters? The alluvial dampers. Oh, I have no idea what that was. That's a buzzword <laughs> I missed. Yeah, alluvial the, dampers. Alluvial dampers. Well, that might be what those blue things are on on the outside of the the exterior. Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah, maybe. Uh, okay, I'll give you my uh, night question. I've got a million to choose from here. What internal temperature will the internal core of coaxium need to be kept above to avoid it exploding? Oh, geez. I don't know. I, I don't even remember that happening. 35 degrees. Okay. There's a lot of like chemistry talk in this 20. Yeah. And so a lot of that kind of flew over my head. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Okay, uh, give me your and- last one. Who notifies Enfys Nest that the homing beacon is attached to the Falcon? I didn't know who that was. That would be Weasel, who oh, okay. would be Anakin's friend from Phantom Menace. <laughs> that's okay. I mean, I think we talked about before uh, that that's a thing, but that's such unnecessary fan service, isn't it? No, it's not. It's actually perfect fan service because he's a slave on Tatooine, and that's what they are. They're a band of misfit slaves and oppressed uh, rebels, people who broke out from slavery within, uh, or, and oppression from the Empire um, and the piracy and just kind of the, the outlawed nature of, of the galaxy at this point. And they banded together. And so that's why I think it's really cool that it's some guy who kind of grew up with Anakin, went down kind of the hard route path and and kind of joined the rebellion in a totally different way, uh, ultimately fighting against the great evil, which was his, you know, childhood friend or at least childhood acquaintance. I guess I just don't, I'm not somebody who needs my, I'm not somebody who needs my fan service to draw everyone who is essentially an extra from previous movies into the greater web of Star Wars so that they all have this multifaceted significance. To me, fan service is best served when uh, Beckett is wearing the same disguise as Lando wears in Return of the Jedi. Like, I think that's yeah. perfect fan service. The Skiff Guard is an excellent piece of fan service, but this is Warwick Davis. That's, like, that's important, and that's a piece of fan service that I think counts as one of those kind of original trilogy 
elements, even though it's not the same character, obviously, from the original trilogy. But I think that's 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 a nice one. I really I really I really quite like that one. Uh, I'll just read off some of the other trivia pieces that I had here, just because they were funny. Uh, what does L three call Lando when uh, he tells her when like when he says that they have to embark? Uh, he calls uh, him her organic overlord. Um, <laughs> Also, that she mentioned the Black Spire as well, uh, and the Black Spire, and that he wouldn't even be able to make it to the Black Spire without her. The Black Spire is the outpost uh, on Batu, which is Galaxy's Edge. Oh, okay, uh, cool. The theme park. So just a nice little uh, hint drop there. Uh, Lando's The Calrissian Chronicles. I was going to ask you what he calls his diary. The Calrissian Chronicles, chapter five, continued. Personally, I wasn't all that impressed with the Cheru. No sense of humor or style. Nonetheless, there L3 and I were deep in their sacred temple. And that's when we saw it. Do you think that there's more Calrissian Chronicles out there to be to be gleaned by us? And also, do you think that they're full of hogwash? Oh, I think they're totally full of complete garbage. Uh, <laughs> but that's kind of Lando's charm. I mean, in theory, a lot of what he says is probably true, but there's so much that it isn't that you just don't know kind of what to decipher. Um, and I mean, he's clearly done some impressive things as to the clout that he's built up in it for his young age. But also, we also realize that he's a cheater and a liar in this movie big time. <laughs> it's just so funny um, that he's like dictating his own autobiography. It's just, it's, it's, golden, per- it's perfect. And it's so self-indulgent. There is a lot of comics though, uh, or I guess not a lot of comics, but there are certainly some comics in new canon. Uh, and I would be curious to know if maybe there's a, a, a canon drop to uh, the Calrissian Chronicles. Uh, he's on chapter five here, so maybe he's uh, on a later comic on like chapter like 300 or something. <laughs> yeah, that would make a cool podcast. That would be really actually quite funny. Donald Glover is uh, Lando in the Calrissian Chronicles. Uh, I also had another... Go ahead. I also had another one here is uh, what's Beckett's alias on Kessel? Tool. And what's yes. here is his alias on Kessel. Oksana Florin, Deputy Deputy Assistant Administrator to the Vice Admiral of the Federation of the Trade Route Allocation and Monetization. Right. <laughs> just a bunch of words. A and, she over doesn't, the top. and she doesn't say where she's from, just like a bunch of words to confuse them. Yeah. The the last important uh, thing I wanted to talk about in this 20 is kind of the first and and perhaps the only thing that Han and, and Lando bond over in this 20, which is that they both kind of come from like broken families. They talk about, uh, Han mentions that his dad built these ships before he was laid off. And, and my first instinct was that maybe if we were going to so develop this character into three more films, we could have gotten like a little bit more about Han's childhood and who these people were. And honestly, what was even more compelling to me was Lando just saying in a write-off line that his mother was the most amazing woman he's ever known. Like, okay, who was she? Sounds like there's a story there. I don't think there is a story there at all. I honestly think that's I think that's just perfect for Lando that he would be the kind because he's a player and a playboy. So the most important woman in his life for the longest time is going to be his mama. And he is going to be focused on like he just it see it seems very fitting because Lando is that playboy style that he would love his mother above all else and put her on a pedestal and almost like using that as his excuse as to why he's kind of, you know, uh going around the galaxy loosey-goosey and it's it, it it seems like it really works for the character to me to just love his mom um so much and be totally okay with that <laughs> right okay that's fair 
but yeah, you're right. There wasn't a whole lot else to say about the, the 20 other than that. Um, there weren't a lot of quotes. We've got a couple else? of quotes. Uh, Lando says to Beckett, I don't like it. I don't agree with it, but I accept it. Beckett says to Lando, you're getting the hang of this. I thought that was kind of good pitter patter. Uh, yeah, that is good. A second ago, you alluded to another thing that Beckett says that's enormously expository about betrayal. He says, assume everyone will betray you and you'll never be disappointed. Yeah, that was a terrible line. I didn't like that one. I just thought it was too on the nose. Another line I liked that's comedic and it also directly refers to uh, their stormtrooper infiltration in A New Hope is when they're in the elevator and Chewie tears the guard's two arms off and Han says, yes. nice, that, w that was the uniform that would have fit me perfectly, but that's fine. Yeah, no, I absolutely love that part. I thought it was excellent. I was really happy that you got to see Chewie tearing off the arms, something that we was removed from The Force Awakens. Uh, no, that was really great. So I have two thoughts for what the episode could be titled. One is cheeky and one is probably a little bit more practical. I liked um, That's a Lot of Capes, Maybe Too Many Capes. Yeah, I had to try one on. It's a lot of capes. Maybe too many capes. I have, <laughs> as my placeholder, Maybe Too Many Capes. Oh, me, me too, actually. So I think that's kind of funny. Although maybe a more practical title would be Do Not Improvise. Yeah, that would be a more practical one. I like, the fact, I like maybe too many capes. Screw it. We're calling it maybe too many capes. <laughs> <laughs> At least we'll remember what 20 it was. It is a very, very easy to picture shot, that cape closet. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to say is that I liked Lando's black fur coat. I thought that he looked pretty sick. And that's all I had for observations about this 20. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really have a whole lot to say either. That uh, fur coat looked awesome. I thought that shot looked awesome with uh, kind of the sparks going and it uh, reflecting on Lando. That was a very cool shot. One of the cooler ones from the trailer, I remember as it's well. It's like one of those shots that's actually put in the movie for the trailer. Oh, 100%. You're totally right. Because it's, I think it was, it must have been the reveal shot of Lando in the, in the first trailer. Yeah, I think it was. Okay, we should talk about the so, news because there's no shortage. Yeah, no, there certainly isn't. Um, let's kind of get on with a few things that aren't uh, necessarily, or do, let's kick it off with the rise of the Skywalker or the rise of Skywalker, um, okay. and anything we didn't cover last time. JJ uh, met with George Lucas and Ryan Johnson and Lawrence Kasdan before writing the movie, which is really good. Okay, you knows that uh, he really kind of brought in all the people, trying to make sure it could go full circle, including parts of the prequels, the original trilogy, and the sequel trilogy, a movie that stands on its own, a movie that wraps up this trilogy, and a movie that wraps up all nine movies. And so, it's really good that he's viewing it that way and and saw it as that challenge, and, and is clearly taking the care by involving the most important writers in those eight movies leading up. Yeah, say what you will about George Lucas especially, and even even Kasdan to an extent, it means a lot to the, the, the bitchiest fan base in the world if you involve these men. Oh, 100%. George Lucas, you have to, like, you have to get as much information from him as possible, in my opinion. And yeah. He's the one who set up a lot of this, and if you can get any anecdote from him, any key piece of information that you can include to make this thing really seem like an overall epic then you use it that's right uh the blockade runner uh this was a shot that wasn't really shown in it wasn't shown in the tr in the trailer but it was shown kind of just around celebration or was leaked out around there and that's but that potentially does lead to um 
uh, lend more credit to the potential that the, one of the MacGuffins is 3PO's memories. And okay. they need to go find that on the Tantive Cube 4. So that's interesting. Could be a little bit uh, that goes along with there. But we also know that there's potential that the MacGuffin is associated with Palpy. Right. Uh, now that he's back. But we do also know, and I don't think we mentioned this last time because I don't think it was mentioned until a couple days later on the Phantom Menace uh, panel when Ian McDermott was there. Uh, and he specifically said that uh, the Emperor is dead. So it's like he died 100% in um, in Return of the Jedi and has been dead. But what we're going to be seeing likely is going to be, I guess, more dark magic associated as opposed yeah. to a resurrection. Yeah, I saw that little interview as well. You're talking about the one with Warwick Davis. Yes. Yeah, I mean, he was kind of telling a greater story about when the character was first killed off and he asked George, does this mean the character is dead? And George was very adamant that yes, the character is dead. Yes, and then I believe that Kathleen Kennedy has also confirmed that though as well. I'm not 100% sure. I believe though that Kathleen or JJ has confirmed that on top of what Ian McDermott said. Okay, I mean, the, obviously his evil is living on in some way, shape or form, whether it's through Plagueis or through Plagueis' teachings or or through another character altogether. What do you make, the, make of this theory that Kylo Ren is in fact Darth Sidious or is in fact Darth Plagueis? Well, that's one that I've, I mean, I, it, it's always made sense within the overall Darth Plagueis uh, theory itself. I mean, Darth, it's in the name, Plague. And yes. that he is infect he infects people, and so the belief was that in order for him to have been Snoke of any capacity was that he had to survive on uh, by clinging to something, most likely, and that it was either he clung to the life of some other being, clung to Palpatine's life, uh, was able to cling to the kind of corpse of his own body, and then was likely looking to to jump into Anakin's body or ultimately then jump into Kylo's body. So it does make some sense. I 100% I, I don't buy it as the theory that he already is. However, I can totally see it being like an intense dark side manipulation that allows for the redemption of Ben Solo to right. be easier to take because it wasn't necessarily his ability his decision but uh there was one thing that i kind of had like it was i i noticed it amongst the midst of all of the theories that were going around uh, and it was just a little snippet someone's thought and i kind of expounded upon it and so i don't really know where the origins are but when when kylo ren has to kill han solo um and he's talking to him and he says he doesn't know if he can do it and he needs his help it's interesting because the way that he kills him is similar to the way he kills Snoke. And I wonder if there's some form of um, like mental lock in terms of Kylo Ren needing to kill Han before being able to kill Snoke of some way. I don't know how that could make sense, but the way he speaks to him really makes me think that there's got to be it's it just doesn't seem right it seems like there's more to his reasoning for why he killed han uh and when someone it it, it it that just makes a lot of sense to me i don't know how it could make sense but it makes sense that there could be something there i guess is that's what fascinating i i never thought before about how his two most, I don't want to say uh, shocking, but his two big kills in episodes seven and eight, respectively, 
are him just secretly turning on his lightsaber and it igniting through somebody. And I realize the contexts are very different, but you're right. There's a big similarity there. Yeah, and like that was the that was really kind of the the imagery. It was I think it was a Reddit post that was bringing it up. Um, and, but I I, th I think there could be more to that than just symmetry, and that I, I think there could be some some force elements in there that who knows um, what kind of mind control. But like Snoke even says, like I see his mind, I know his every move, and so like maybe he has to like strike true his true enemy like i don't know like what he's envisioning but and so or, or maybe the plan was all along for him to kill that decrepit old body so he could then take over the young skywalker body yeah and, well, and, well that's in terms of the plagueis notion a hundred percent i mean the whole goal in, is never to go through sidious or snoke it's to allow sidious and snoke to do all the work and then steal the skywalker or the Ben Solo, um, right? Because they're the ones who have the raw power that Snow clearly wants. Uh, a couple other things that I wanted to to mention, uh, and because we just watched Revenge of the Revenge of the Sith, I figured it'd be fresh in your mind. Uh, but nobody's remembered or has brought up the fact that this movie was not codenamed Trixie prior to the Rise of Skywalker. Uh, it was codenamed. It was codenamed prior to that, um, Black Diamond, which goes back to um, Snoke's Black Diamond ring with um, kind of the catacombs of Vader's castle, and now right. that kind of linking the Emperor back into it uh, with the engravings of the Dwarty, there could be something in there uh, to do to do with that uh, with that ring. That ring could have some significance to deal with Palpatine in particular. Uh, now that we know he has survived somehow, um, I mean, and Seth that, have the ability that, to kind of yeah retain that, in objects. That ring could be another goddamn MacGuffin, and I just like to say we've talked a mm -hmm. lot about we've used that word a lot on the podcast in the last little while, and like just in general, MacGuffins are not considered like a super great thing if you're trying to write a good story. Like they're they're often considered quite a crutch in narratives, and like good examples would be like. Uh, Marvel Endgame comes out at the end of this week and like the Infinity Stones are a super overt lazy MacGuffin. So are the Horcruxes at the end of Harry Potter. There are examples where it can be well disguised in a story, but I'm really hoping that we have something that's well disguised. I don't just want episode nine to be, a be like, a, oh, it's out there. Well, let's go on a trip to go get it and because that's that's lazy. I think, I think to a degree it's, we would... It would be done great if George Lucas and J.J. Abrams had done this the way that they had always intended to. Yeah. Because the whole intention uh, and the direction things were going was for the character that Kylo Ren became, he was supposed to be obsessed with the past. Obsessed with the past and right. obsessed with Vader. Uh, and so they keep shards of that and completely actually flip it on its head in The Last Jedi with Kill the Past uh, or forget the past, kill it if you have to, or whatever the line was. But it, he was supposed to be a relic hunter who was obsessed with artifacts uh, and on kind of reliving the, I guess, the glory of the Empire or fixing the mistakes or, or, or whatever. But they didn't really keep that as a through line. And so having this kind of MacGuffin chase really would have made a lot of sense for this final trilogy if that built up consistently throughout 
uh, Force Awakens, Last Jedi, and then to this movie. But because they didn't build on it, you're right. It does kind of look like a shitty crutch. Whereas in the sense of uh, Infinity War and uh, in the Deathly Hallows, and I never, really, I never really saw it that way. But it's a great point. These are kind of end cap uh, stories that are told in a couple of parts, and they're really just like, okay, let's get our checklist of MacGuffins. Right. Whereas I think that really could have worked well for this overall trilogy. Because they start out with such focus and they keep such focus on the Graflex and on certain articles of the past. Uh, Like, for example, they even have the medals uh, from uh, the Battle of Yavin that they show in the trailer. And so I I really think they could have done a better job of keeping that through line. And uh, I just, and that goes to Ryan Johnson just not being told that, just very likely not being told that was part of these character developments or being told that that was and him actively changing it and then JJ retconning it by using MacGuffins again. So I really think they got lazy after The Force Awakens was such an enormous success and they just let the communication fall by the wayside for Ryan Johnson. Like I don't I don't fault him. He made a fun movie. Uh, I'm certainly mm. not in in I'm not anti Ryan Johnson, but he like got left off some important email chains. Yeah, no, I think Kathleen Kennedy is the one who probably dropped the ball a little bit more here. I mean, Ryan Johnson, there's a story group with Star Wars, and Ryan Johnson was not necessarily, I mean, he he knew about them, and he had access to them, and he used them, he spoke with authors, but that's the kind of thing that Kathleen Kennedy, she's really done a good job of pairing Dave Filoni up with Jon Favreau, so making sure that Jon Favreau, this excellent creator who loves Star Wars is also able to insert elements of the overall Star Wars universe that's being built up to make sure that it's all connected and pieced together in a nice way. Whereas I think that's existed kind of across the board but was missing with Ryan Johnson's because like JJ had Lawrence Kasdan that he could reference back to and George Lucas was originally involved in the project. And so I I think you're right in thinking that um, Ryan Johnson, because the success of The Force Awakens, they just assumed they could kind of keep going, whereas they maybe undervalued all of the input that was actually in The Force Awakens that they just didn't really even consider as being like having so many damn cooks in the kitchen versus just the one that they then switched to. Yeah, I think that's what happened. Yeah, no, that's fair. Uh, on the topic got- of Ryan Johnson, though, um, Ryan Johnson is going to be working very closely with Benioff and Weiss on building nice. out kind of the next 10 years of Star Wars lore uh, and storytelling in movies. Uh, they're going to conduct their trilogies separately, uh, but that they will be working very closely together. And that's a really good sign for just continuity in the overall saga, which is really exciting. I'm getting really psyched for this. I just hope that it doesn't take itself too seriously. Like uh, there's a there's a little cheek to Game of Thrones uh, and I oh, think that, that that Lord and Miller have a little too much cheek for Game of Thrones, but Star Wars, if we're not going to have the Skywalker story anymore and all of that charisma from those many affable characters, we're going to need some, we're going to need some joy in these movies, you know, not just darkness. I think that's not going to be a problem when you think of like the K2SOs of the world. Uh, it, 100%, I agree uh, that you can have dark tones with humor, but you need to make sure that humor doesn't fall by the wayside for trying to tell like a story that is like, oh, this great big epic story. Yes, but it needs to be an epic Star Wars story. And I, and yeah. I, I, I agree. I, I share your concerns that I, I 100% share your concerns. I, I hope that they're 
not necessary. And I don't think that they're necessary, um, but it's still something you always worry about. Uh, the Old Republic is very likely what the era is going to be in some capacity here, but we don't know what that means. And so the Old Republic is something that Kathleen Kennedy has said that they're developing uh, content for. And so the odds of it, it just makes sense for all of Star Wars for them to use the, the movies as the platform to build out from. Right, so exactly. If you think about it, you can have Benioff and Weiss and Ryan Johnson set up the galaxy for the next, for 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago, 100 years ago, just to break it down into chunks and be and really just kind of shape how the, the Jedi and the Sith arcs uh, lead up from the old Republic to now. And then if they want to even go before the Republic, the formation of the Jedi and Sith of, of sorts, but I don't think we need to go back that far quite yet. Uh, but if you can shape up like, thousands of years and then have Benioff and Weiss station a movie series 3,000 years ago and Ryan Johnson's trilogy a thousand years ago or 1,500 years ago. Well, that allows for, as opposed to the 20 years between Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope, 1,500 years between these two trilogies. You're right. In which yes. you have points to build off from and create so many new television shows and books and novels but then you keep that continuity that's consistent by having them work together to build out that entire period of time and then have them almost kind of select their centuries or their millenniums. Exactly. Yeah, that's kind of, that's certainly my hope. Uh, the Clone Wars, they showed some content from that, um, some new footage, but nothing really. Uh, I do have a bit of a prediction that because the Clone Wars is coming out a little later, I think that some of the content needed to be um, I guess redone or some new shots needed to be created. I really think they're going to connect Clone Wars to the Mandalorian. Yeah, that would be cool. Uh, right? I, th I, I think because the Siege of Mandalore is a big plot arc that they're going to be focusing on, it just makes a lot of sense to have some plants as to the Mandalorian's backstory. Uh, and I guess we can kind of transition that into the Mandalorian itself because we find out through the Mandalorian panel that we don't really know the, that character's name. It's going to be kind of the man with no name, the Mandalorian. Um, but he, it looks awesome. <laughs> it does. I know. Uh, yeah, there's the, there was a Warner, uh, the Warner Herzog uh, kind of clip that went around, um, kind of leaked through celebration. Uh, that was, that looked excellent. It was very much uh, kind of reminiscent of Nazis post-World War II and hiding and needing to, kind of hide their Nazi gold and get jobs done and do things behind the behind the eyes of the chaos of the law. And so it, it's it, it just looks like a really cool time in Star Wars to explore. Uh, and it seems to have captured that original trilogy vibe quite well. There's a good chance we're going to be able to do a whole season of this podcast on the first season of The Mandalorian before we even get to episode nine. Isn't yeah, that a I mean, it's very possible. Uh, there's uh, so they're going to be released two, uh, one or two at the start, and then it's going to be released kind of like episode by episode. I mean, we can assume likely week by week, but I mean it hasn't been specifically specified for some really? dumb reason. Disney Plus isn't releasing it in Canada at the initial time, but you and I yeah. will absolutely find ways to see it on November twelfth. So I'm not it's worried. Just a, that was just a, a mistake a on Disney's part. It's a CRTC stagnation. They're going to find some other way to make yeah. it available, I think. But yeah, l legally, it's just this unfortunate gray area. 
Yeah, it's a Bell Media thing, most likely. Um, IG-88, uh, that character, uh, it doesn't look like IG-88 is actually going to be the prominent IG droid. It looks like the prominent IG droid in the series is going to be IG-11. Okay. Uh, and so it's not going to be that same kind of connection, but still be able to see kind of the cool badass moves. Uh, and there was also one part of the Mandalorian where they ran out of stormtroopers, and this is super cool. And so in shooting, they called up the 501st, which is essentially a legion of fan stormtroopers uh, that are also used for like events and such. So like you know when like Disney has to um, like hold an event, and they may have like stormtroopers as like door guards, for example. Um, yes those people aren't like th- those are from a select group that Disney can that can just pick from to have as the event. It's the 501st, but they're not extras in the movies. Um, but they did get to be for the Mandalorian. And so they called them up uh, just as like a, Hey, can you uh, come to this uh, venue? And then they all got to be in uh, uh, a day's shooting of the Mandalorian. So that was really oh, cool that's, for them. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cara Dune is the character played by Gina Carano. Uh, Grief Karga is the character played by um, Carl Weathers. It's uh, really all we know, but they seem like uh, kind of badasses. Grief Grief seems to be the, kind of the leader of their guild, and uh, Cara Dune is a, an ex-rebel shock trooper. Uh, so it would be kind of interesting to hear a little bit about her past and who she may have had dealings with along the way. Any other um, major things we should mention? Um, not a whole lot. Uh, there's going to be a Lego, another Lego Star Wars game. Uh, there's a <laughs> TIE Fighter comic series that started, and it's going to tie in with uh, the Alphabet Squadron books, uh, which is going to be kind of a whole series of different uh, kind of like TIE pilots, X-Wing pilots, and so hence the Alphabet name. Um, Jedi Fallen Order, they had the trailer for that, so that looks really cool. Uh, that comes out November 15th. Uh, Cameron Monaghan is the kind of the the protagonist of that so oh, he's great he's uh yeah he is great a lot of people were making jokes about how mark hamill went from uh from jedi to joker and uh, he's <laughs> gone from joker to jedi so no kidding yeah uh and uh, the second sister inquisitor is seems to be the main villain which is awesome uh so we get to see some nice connections to rebels there uh and the inquisitors are badass villains which will be like perfect for video games and really is just going to be a lot of fun to play against and so this this one does look like a like a fun game to play for sure oh good finally yeah um after that really there's not a whole lot uh don't expect to get into galaxy's edge until like 2021 i mean they're doing like limited four hour passes and it's it's just going to be insane for years um i know so that's a bummer going to be an it is a bummer but it, it is one thing where i'm just I've written it off as I will not be, I will not see it until 2021 at the earliest. Right. Um, and other than that, I guess a bit of a reader's update for me is uh, I finished Queen's Shadow. It was a good character study, uh, kind of to learn a little bit more about uh, Padme and her handmaidens and about kind of that that time period and with the era of the politics. But overall, the book didn't actually have a plot. Yeah. <laughs> And had a lot of dull politics, even though it was politics. Uh, so it was it was similar to Bloodline or Leia, Princess of Alderaan, but worse politics and no actual plot and 
Padme isn't as interesting as Leia. So it, it just it it left a lot to be to be it left a lot to want. But let me just yeah, put that's it that too way. bad. That's kind of too bad. Uh, it's important one, to know as much as you now know, I guess, about these characters. But ultimately, it was a bit of a waste. Yeah, and that's really like I had no issue uh, getting through it, which was nice. It wasn't a slog because the, it was interesting to learn about the characters. It just as a book, it just wasn't good because it just didn't have a plot, it didn't have an right. actual story. Okay, uh, but it does. It did shed more light on Sabe, which is Kira Knightley's um, decoy for uh, Padme, and yeah. uh, it, that character. And it's obviously this is a bit of a spoiler, but. Uh, they leave the door open that that character could, if they needed uh, another main character in the Cassian show, for example, uh, they could get Kira Knightley in, um, in that kind of the rebellion, and Sabe eventually does join the rebellion. So, Oh, cool. It, yeah, it is kind of cool in that regard, and that that character uh, that just kind of disappeared into thin air, thin air for canon now does have a, a lot to them, which is nice. Yeah. Uh, and so... I did start, though, the first chapter of Master and Apprentice, which was just released. Uh, and in that first chapter, I already like it more than Queen's Shadow. There was already more plot and more happened in that kind of 15 minutes of audiobook versus the eight and a half hours of Queen's Shadow. So it was it's just off to an awesome start. Uh, it's getting great reviews, uh, and Claudia Gray hasn't, missed yet and this is her first book that's focused on the force and jedis and apparently it really focuses on those and really dives in on qui-gon and i'm just excited to tear through it over the next couple weeks because i have to fly to vancouver in two weeks so it'll nice. be done I'm, very soon i'm gonna be on planes a little bit in the next couple of weeks too maybe i'll i'll download that that sounds great you should you really yeah. should i have to say in the first chapter uh, you see elements of Qui-Gon that you can see that Obi-Wan inherits. Uh, there are parts about the character that you just, you learn a little bit more about. Right out of the get-go, you're in the mind of Qui-Gon, and it's in the midst of running through uh, a hut palace. Uh, and you get to have him dealing with huts, speaking in Huttonese. It just oozes Star Wars from every pore it's awesome nice nice yeah okay we should uh, wrap this up y'all good yeah that's everything on my book okay a whole bunch of birthdays because we haven't done a podcast in a couple of weeks so backtracking uh happy birthday on uh friday april 19th to hayden christensen oh the, happy birthday anakin skywalker the very next day uh saturday the 20th a happy birthday to andy circus uh nice. Jumping a week after uh, Friday, so this Friday, the 26th. Uh, happy birthday to Andy Seccombe, who was the voice of Watto. Nice. Uh, next Monday, the 29th, happy birthday to Irvin Kirshner, which is a good one. Yes. Thank God and for him. Next Tuesday, April 30th, happy birthday to the late Phil Brown, who played Uncle Owen in Star Wars A New Hope. Ah, Uncle Owen. Always putting Luke in his place for good reasons. <laughs> That's right. Uh, okay, so if you want to be caught up to where we are for next week's podcast, you're going to want to watch the first hour 40-ish of Solo, A Star Wars Story. And in the meantime, you can send your thoughts on this week's podcast or any other, or if you have interesting episode nine theories, by emailing us, uh, recorder66podcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet recorder66. 
uh, on Twitter. Uh, of course, rate and review on iTunes. And until we join each other again, may the force be with you. <laughs>